please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. I recently read that the only thing fixed nowadays is that nothing is fixed. The only certain thing is that nothing is certain. And the only sure thing is that there is no sure thing. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like the rug is being pulled out from under you? People we love struggle and die. Our jobs take unexpected turns. Our relationships waver on rocky ground. People hurt us. Sometimes it seems as though all of life is unstable, uncertain. And in this world of uncertainty, most people are searching for something that's fixed, settled, not to be doubted, something to give them security and hope. With the demands and pressures of daily life, we too may be looking for a fixed point in life that gives us confidence, security, and hope. Scripture has quite a bit to say about confidence and hope because this has always been a yearning of people. And 2 Timothy 1.12 is one of these places, as the Apostle Paul says, This is why I am suffering as I am. Yet this is not cause for shame, for I, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded and convinced that he is able to guard that which I've entrusted to him until that day. Because Paul cares so much about Timothy, he writes this letter to him to talk with him about the things that matter most in life and ministry. Paul and Timothy have a close friendship. Paul has invested himself in Timothy. He calls him his true son of the faith. Paul writes these words to Timothy from a prison cell. This is his second imprisonment. Acts 28 describes Paul's first imprisonment, where he lived in a home, saw people, and continued to preach the gospel. In Philippians 2.24 and Philemon verse 22, we see that Paul has hope that he will soon be released from this first imprisonment as he speaks about coming to see them and asks that they prepare a guest room for him. Whereas during the second imprisonment, Paul is in chains in a cold dungeon. He's wrestling with discouragement because some of his closest followers have deserted him and are leading people astray in the churches he loves. This time, Paul has no expectations of leaving prison. He knows he's awaiting death. Yet in the midst of all of this, Paul writes about confident faith and unwavering hope. <clears throat> It's because of his faith in Jesus that Paul was beaten with rods three times, stoned once, was shipwrecked three times, and 
was adrift at sea for a day and a night, and now he's in prison, in chains. Of all people, Paul might be the least likely to feel hope and certainty. But Paul seems to understand that hope and certainty don't come from ignoring reality. And in this sense, he walks in the way of many of the writers of the Psalms of Lament. Psalm 13 is a good example, as we just heard a bit ago, where the psalmist writes, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I struggle and wrestle with my thoughts day after day and have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. Here we see, life is a mess. No denying this. There appears to be no immediate resolution. No denying this either. Nevertheless, the psalmist, like the Apostle Paul, says, Because I know who God is, I still have faith and hope. Paul's words and message in 2 Timothy are so important for us because we often find it difficult to have faith and hope in God for what we're currently facing to turn around or to hope for the future when we feel so discouraged and overwhelmed by what's happening to us or around us. Probably, at one time or another, Most of us can resonate with the person who recently said to me, All I want is just a glimmer of hope. Sometimes our struggle with hope is rooted in our embarrassment about what we're going through. There are times that we feel that all of the negative circumstances are a reflection upon our own spiritual journey. We may wonder what people are thinking about us. We may ask ourselves, what have I done wrong to get into this situation? Paul understands this because imprisonment carries with it a social stigma. It would be natural for Paul to feel embarrassed because of his chains. But he doesn't feel that way at all. And he doesn't want Timothy to feel this way either. So he writes to his young protege, I'm suffering here in prison, but I'm not ashamed of it. For Paul, those chains simply remind him, not of his struggles, but of the faith and hope he has in God. In 2 Timothy 1.12, we learn that Paul doesn't give up on his faith and hope in God because he says, I know whom I have believed. Paul knows Jesus. 
It's significant that he doesn't say, I know what I have believed. As important as what we believe is, Paul in his writings is very clear that what we believe about God and his word is crucial. Yet as important as what we believe is, who we believe in is more important. In the midst of his suffering and trials, his chains, his imprisonments, having dear friends and colleagues forsake him and desert him, Paul has a confident faith and an unwavering hope in God because he knows Jesus. There's a vast difference between just having head knowledge about Jesus and personally knowing him. It's the difference between knowing about someone who is famous from what we read or watch on TV as opposed to the people that we have an intimate connection with, a spouse, children, siblings, parents, or our closest friends. We might know all kinds of factual information about all kinds of people, but we don't really know them if we don't actually have a relationship with them. Paul personally knows Jesus and his saving grace in his life. Because Paul has a genuine relationship with Jesus, he knows him as Lord of every part of his life, of his past, his present, and his future. Jesus has worked in Paul's life healing and redeeming his past. Paul describes his past in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, I once was a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man. I acted in ignorance and unbelief. I am the worst of sinners. In that same description of himself, he acknowledges that anything good in him is because of Jesus, who he describes as pouring out on him abundant grace, unending mercy, and unlimited patience, transforming him and setting him free from the guilt of his past. Probably one of the most helpless feelings is to know that we've totally messed up in the past and that the guilt of our past continues to invade our present life. The realization that there's nothing we can do to lift that guilt can be paralyzing. We have to come to the place that we acknowledge that only Jesus can lift our guilt and lead us to live in his all-encompassing forgiveness and freedom. As Jesus' nail-pierced hand goes over our past, the guilt is gone. Then the past only remains as gratitude for such amazing grace that can and does lift the burden of our guilt. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. It's because of Paul's experience with Jesus as Lord of his past 
that he has confidence in Jesus as Lord of his present. And in this confidence, he is able to face sin and temptation and sorrow and opposition, looking them straight in the eye and in the name of Jesus, walk through them victoriously. And Paul also knows Jesus as Lord of his future, so he is free from worry and fear of what's to come. Paul lives with a personal knowledge, a certainty that Jesus is Lord of every part of his life. And this knowledge, this certainty, changes everything for him. I once read about a young man who was living an unhappy life until the day that he met a pastor who asked him, What do you believe? After pondering the question, the man answered, I believe that there's a difference between right and wrong. The pastor then asked the man to pray this prayer. Oh God, if there is a God, I believe that there's a difference between right and wrong, and I want to do right. If it's right to follow Jesus, show me the way. The young man prayed this prayer from his heart, and God revealed himself to him. The man's life was transformed as he came to know Jesus personally as his Savior and Lord. Years later, towards the end of his life, the man said, I know Jesus better than I know anyone else. There's something profound and beautiful in that declaration. I know Jesus better than I know anyone else. And I believe that this is Paul's declaration. I know Jesus better than I know anyone else. Paul had this close friendship with Jesus as his Savior and as Lord of every part of his life, his past, his present, and his future, which is why he believes and trusts in him and has this unwavering hope in life and in death. Almost nine years ago, my mom called us one Saturday evening. She said, We think your dad had a heart attack about an hour ago. But because we weren't sure and we didn't want to worry you, we waited to call you. If you could have seen into our home in that moment, and if phones still had cords, you would have seen the receiver dangling down from the cord as we ran out the front door of our house to race across the street to my parents' home. Even though my dad did have a heart attack, Thankfully, we were able to get him to the hospital where we learned that he needed five bypasses. Early on the morning of my dad's open-heart surgery, as most of us do when facing potential life-and-death situations, we talked about what's really important, how much we love each other, how grateful we are for all of the wonderful memories that we've shared together, and how good God has been and is to us. 
After praying together, when it was time for them to take my father into surgery, he ended the conversation with words that I'll never forget. He said, Whether I live or die, either way, I'll be fine. And this is the hope that Paul experiences sitting in the cold dungeon in chains, awaiting execution, as he says, I'm confident about my faith and hope in God, no matter what. Paul knows that for those who believe in Jesus, death isn't the end. There's more. There's life after death. So whether he lives or dies, he's safe and secure in God. This is the confident faith and the unwavering hope that Paul wants Timothy to know and experience, and what he wants us to know and experience in our lives. Paul says he's persuaded, convinced, that God is able to guard what he's entrusted to him until that day. The words persuaded or convinced just don't seem quite strong enough for what Paul means. He isn't describing a hunch or wishful thinking. This is pure conviction, unwavering confidence and hope. Paul's beliefs aren't based on speculation, but on absolute certainty. Paul is completely certain that God will guard what he's entrusted, what he's surrendered, what he's given to him. The word guard carries with it the idea of keeping safe from harm or danger, of watching over, preserving, protecting. It expresses the idea of watchful care. And in this word to Timothy, Paul speaks about God and the hope that's his because of God's loving, protective, watchful care. The Greek word here for the phrase, what I have entrusted, literally means deposit. It's what we do when we give our money to the bank. We want and we're depending upon them to keep our money safe for us. We entrust our money to the bank because we believe in the bank's ability to guard and keep it. Trust is at the heart of the banking industry. Someone has said, we don't take our money to a guy living in a trailer with a homemade sign that says, Fast Eddie's Bank. I hope we take our money to a bank with an established name in a decent-looking building where we hand our check to a respectable-looking teller. If all of the tellers look like guys who are scrounging for drug money, we might decide to bank elsewhere because to deposit money in a bank requires trust. So our surrendering of ourselves and what we have to God requires trust. Psalm 31.5 helps us better understand the meaning of this when the psalmist says, "Into Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. 
The Good News translation says, I place myself in your care. You will save me, Lord. You are a faithful God. Because Paul knows Jesus, he's confident that God is faithful and trustworthy. It's by personal experience that Paul has found this to be true. Paul says in his writings that God has rescued him, stood by his side, and given him strength. Because of this, he believes, he knows, God will safely guard the deposit he's entrusting to him. We aren't quite sure what it is that Paul's giving to God. It could be the people that he's brought to Jesus. It could be the churches that are under him. It could be his work himself, or perhaps all of it. But whatever it is, it is of the highest value to Paul that he gives it to God with the absolute certainty that God will keep it and safely guard it forever. This type of confident faith and unwavering hope in God is what enables us to face our past, our present, and our future. Because when we deposit something into God's hands, we're saying to him, I'm surrendering this to you for safekeeping because I no longer want to struggle to keep and guard it myself. Now I'm free. I'm free to live without fear or anxiety for this person, this situation, or even for myself because I know with complete confidence that I can trust the hands who hold what I've given to him. Without a doubt, I know God is holding what I've given, what I've surrendered to him, and he's holding me. Our confident faith and unwavering hope in God don't just make what we're going through instantly change, or maybe ever change, but they do change us and our perspective in the midst of all that we are facing. As this happens, we begin to understand that it's these very trials and difficulties that can open us up to God helping us to trust him and surrender more of our concerns and more of ourselves to him, leading us to a deeper and stronger faith, helping us know that we're secure in God no matter what. I once heard about a woman on whom the years had taken a toll on her body and mind. She was one of those people that everyone wanted to be around. She was the kind of person that you always felt better after having spent time with her. She knew and loved Jesus, and she knew the Bible. She could repeat long passages of scripture from memory. But as the years came and her strength went, her memory gradually went too. Over time, 
she lost the power to recall what was so familiar and so important to her. But one precious bit still stayed. She would sit in the comfortable chair by the big window in her home, repeating over and over this one bit. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard that which I have committed to him until that day. By and by, part of that seemed to slip as well, and she would quietly be repeating, That which I have committed to him. That which I have committed to him. In the last few weeks, as she hovered between this life and the next, her feebleness increased. Her family and friends would see her lips moving and would go over and bend down to listen to what she was saying. And time after time, they discovered that she was saying one word, him, him, him. She had seemingly lost everything, but she kept Jesus. In the uncertainties and difficulties of life, in your life and in the lives of those you love, do you trust Jesus? Do you have confidence in who he is and in his ability to keep and guard you? Are you placing your hope in him? You can. With all certainty, you can. And as you do, you will find that he is trustworthy, good, and faithful. Gracious Father, we thank you for your glorious word of hope to us. May we know with all confidence that we can trust you no matter what. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.